Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam. Asher bakar bin ve'im tovim, ve'ratzah ve'divrehim ha'ne'emarim ve'emet. Baruch atah Adonai, ha'boker v'torah u'moshe avdo v'yisrael amo, u'vin v'e ha'emet v'zedek. Biskut Mashiach Yeshua, amen ve'amen. HaKadosh Baruch Hu made this podcast be to the Rufua Shlema of Esther Markovitz Batsera. Amen. Amen. Well, Shalom, everybody. Welcome to the Haftarah. Get you some for Parsha Kitisa. So, yeah, I was trying to think of an interesting name to title this Torah portion because this is probably one of the most epic Torah portions that we have. Um, besides Parsha Bo, get you some, um, and obviously other Parshot that pop up and just hit us in the face. But, uh, you know, Brukasham, I got Hasis over here, and we're going to let it go with the Haftarah Insights. All right. <clears throat> so, we're, of course, in um, Haftarah for Kitiza, and this is, of course, where... Eliyahu is raining down fire to disprove idolatry. So we come in here, and it is this is around the time period. Um, this is when King uh, Ahav in Northern Kingdom is is ruling. Um, it is about eight hundred sixty nine to eight hundred fifty before Common Era. All right. And so a lot of times there's. Uh, Isabel, you have to pronounce it like that. Ye? Isabel, his Yisabel. wife. Yeah, she just got to stress that. Mm. It sound like evil. Oh, you know? wow. <laughs> Isabel came in and right away started to introduce idol worship. Man. And so let's go to her. Let's go to our, our characters. We'll touch down on our, our characters that we have here. She needs we a special have. introduction. We need to, ooh. Yeah, we need that the shutter effect or whatever. You know? Like Mufasa, ooh. Ooh. <laughs> anyway. Isabel. Ooh. So, <laughs> she was one of the four women who actually assumed rulership in the world. You have Isabel and Athaliah assumed rulership of Israel. Uh, Shemamamadith, the wife of Nebuchadnezzar, and Vashti assumed rulership of the nations of the world. It's from uh, Esther Rabbah. Um, the very first year she came in and entered Ahab's home, she taught him how to serve idols. Wow. And, you know, she was uh, a daughter of idol-serving, pre- idol-serving priests, and she bore 70 sons. Oh. And every day, According to Sanhedrin 102b, every day she wheel out gold shekels for idolatry. Um, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll shoot. I'll shoot one mare her way, um, and we'll we'll see the effects of that. It says her house. Um, uh, her house adjoined the marketplace, wherever a bride and groom passed by. She would go out of her house and clap her hands, sing in their honor, and walk ten steps. Whenever a dead person was carried through the marketplace, she would go out of her house and would uh, gesticulate with her hands, lament, and walk after them, uh, the bear. And therefore, although Eliyahu, uh, blessed memory, actually prophesied the dogs shall eat Yezebel, and this is in, later in, 
and kings, the dogs actually had no power over the limbs that performed these acts of chesed. Mm. So it's, it's written in the scriptures, they went to bury her, but they found no more than the skull, the feet, and the palms of her hands. Wow. And so even though, yes, the dogs did devour her, they couldn't actually consume, they couldn't touch the limbs that performed these uh, great feats, if you will, of kindness. Wow. Okay. So preserved in righteousness, pretty much. Yes. And we, we have another character who's, who's briefly mentioned, uh, kind of a, a throwback to one of our other half-tours. We have Avadya. Cool. Um, the one who went and saved a hundred prophets, him in the caves. He's actually the uh, the right-hand man, if you will, of King Ahaz. Mm. Um, and interesting enough about him, it is written, according to Sanhedrin 39b, that he is, it stresses that he's exceedingly God-fearing. And the Talmud, they, they compare him to Abraham the Patriarch and say he surpasses even them because it's written of Abraham that he was, now I know that you are God-fearing, but Ovadia, however, is described as exceedingly God-fearing. Mm. And so, a lot of merits on, on this guy. So he should not be put the same just because he served uh, those who went astray. You know, oh, he man. still served God very faithfully. Can we just shout out that Ovadia is from the household of Asaph? A.K.A. he could be seen as an ex-Christian who is now a get-you-some Yehudi. So um, that's pretty legit when you kind of look back at the books like that. Because, you know, in this week's Torah portion, the people who did convert into Judaism were thrown all the way under the bus at the Golden Calf. And it was just like, pick up the bus and throw it away. Because... Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, do it. No, no, go for it. I don't mean to interrupt. I was just going to say that, uh, you know, because really, when you look at who converts to Judaism, who in their right mind wants to enter into circumcision and kosher eating and festivals that the world does not do? Someone who really, really loves Hashem. And even if they do it for the wrong reasons, um, there's still that fact that, you know, you can start Torah in an impure place. But ultimately, because the Torah is purity, it's righteousness, it's cleansing, it brings you to that awesome place that you need to be in. So, Bezrat Hashem, that was the case. But uh, anyway, just Ovadia gets me fired up every time I think about him. I know. Uh, such an incredible uh, prophet, such an incredible man. Uh, just look for his life. And I love that point that he meant about, <clears throat> you know, uh, the Torah's purity and all that. You know, it, it, it doesn't matter where we start out in life, what uh, tendencies we have, what desires we have, what characteristics we have, um, any, any sort of evil inclinations that we have, all that doesn't matter uh, because it literally says at the very beginning of the Torah, Hashem created like with the Torah. Yes. Like it says, Be'erashit. It's a, Rashid is termed like it's, it's Israel, is it the Torah? And you know, you say, hey, Israel didn't exist yet, right? So, obviously, it's the Torah. With the Torah, he created the heavens and earth. So, you have the Torah as this idea of what what creates things. Mm. And so, you could kind of flip that back of ourselves. Once we dive into Torah, once we start studying it, um, 
for us to come close to Hashem, then we get recreated in the process. Like creating me a clean heart? Yes. Mm. So there's there's no excuse. If you feel like you were uh, born, you know, with a, a, a deficit and whatever or a, a strong evil inclination, Torah can recreate you. And so you just need to stick with the path of Torah and you'll be recreated and there's nothing to worry about. Oh, man. All right. So we move on to Eliyahu. Nice. <laughs> he was one of, um, we mentioned this before, according to an, another person, um, but he was one of the eight princes among men, according to Sukkah 52b. Wow. And it says, the, the hide of Ram that was created at twilight of the sixth day of creation actually became the leather belt around the race of Eliyahu. Wow. And there is some differences according to uh, what tribe was he from. You know, some say he was from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, some say he was from the tribe of God. And another, uh, Shokotov mentions that he was from the house of Aaron. Ooh. Snap. <laughs> you know. And so, very, very mysterious, intriguing character. Now, that, would, that would take like a whole podcast and then some of itself just talk about Eliyahu. You're right. <laughs> so we'll just mention a few few more facts. He had four disciples, Micah, Yona, Ovadia, and Elisha, Eliyushua, as you pointed out, one and a half Torahs. Cool. Uh, Pesquita Rabbatai says, him and Eliyahu were equivalent to one another in many, many aspects. And in Shabbos 55a, it mentions that uh, this question, since when has the merit of the patriarch ceased? It says, since the days of Eliyahu. Ooh. Which is kind of interesting because it mentions that he still lives. Ooh. <laughs> so this idea that the merit of the patriarchs is always with us. And Bezrat Hashem will, will touch back to the issue of what that really means. Mm. Uh, well, we're going to leave that cup out for Eliyahu and keep it moving. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, there, there's a cave. I thought that was interesting considering... Uh, Hathor Kitiza, you know, have Moshe who yeah. was placed in the cave. Yeah. And he sees him. Um, he mentions that 10 things were created on the eve of Shabbos at twilight, according to Peskim 54a. Uh, the cave, one of them was the cave in Sinai, which Moshe and later Eliyahu uh, stood. Wow. And so this is one of the things that was created at the eve of twilight. And then, last but not least, according to Megillah 19b, it says that if a hole the size of a small needle had remained in the cave in which Moshe had later um, Eliyahu and later Eliyahu stood when God's glory passed before it, they could not have stood before the light that was revealed there. Can we uh, tag in Matityahu 17? Starting at verse 2, he was transfigured before them. Who was? Mashiach Yeshua. His face shone like the sun, like this bright light that we're talking about. His garments became white as light, like this light that we're talking about. And behold, Moshe and Eliyahu appeared to them. Because, you know, Yeshua is with his compadres. Um, his closest compadres, that is. And, uh, yeah, so this whole section of what's called the transfiguration. Notice how light is like all throughout this little section here and here we are talking about this cave that was created at twilight and here they are on this mountain 
And the pl same place where Moshe and Eliyahu were. Here's Mashiach and some of his closest Talmudim. You know, <clears throat> I think that whole moment's interesting. As you're talking, this, this, this idea came up of, I wonder at that point, when they entered in, when they both saw like this, the glory of Hashem, and they had this encounter, talking about Moshe and Eliyahu, I wonder if that light, like, drew them in a place outside of time where they were literally in the moment, the transfiguration with Yeshua. Yes. Like, if they're beyond time, if that moment, they were there. Right. And that's one of the deeper reasons of their, them appearing there. Okay, so I don't know how much between you and I we know about time and the speed of light, but time is measured via the light. Is that right, or is it the other way around? Well, there's this idea of, you know, a light year, like how fast light travels, and, you know, that that kind of concept. Um, but you could, you could have this, this whole idea of... You know, Hashem outside of time, you know, Hashem is light. And so they're attaching themselves to this, this holy light that's coming and they're, they're going into a realm that's beyond, uh, beyond the dimension of time, if you will. Yes. And so there's plenty of like theoretical physics works that, that talk about going outside these, like these higher dimensions, um, and going outside the realm of time, space time, which is, uh, one of the things that, you know, uh, Abraham, um, sorry, um, not Abraham. Albert Einstein is accredited with yes. finding the dimension that that time and space are one. But you know, the the Ram Rambam found this like hundreds of years before he even existed. Ken. So, you know, shout out to our sages Sorry. and why we need to listen to them and follow the Oral Torah. Cool. Because they're light years ahead of us. Oh, <laughs> I like that. I mean, I like that. <laughs> All right, so let's go to our our notorious uh, villain, if you will. This is Ahav, son of Omri. Mm. He was mentioned as one of the three men who ruled over the whole world, uh, along with uh, Ahasuerus and Nebuchadnezzar. Um, no, it says no person was as wealthy as him. Two hundred thirty-two kings served him. When Ahav heard these that these two hundred thirty-three kings sought to rebel against him, he sent for one son of each king and kept them all under his thumb in Jerusalem and Samaria. Our sages say that those 232 sons of kings were idolaters, but upon coming to Jerusalem and Samaria, they became truly God-fearing. A great salvation came to Israel through them, as written Ahav said, to who, through whom the prophet said, through the young men of the princes of provinces, 1 King 2014. When Ahav died, the young men of the princes of province left, each for his own home. Hmm. And so just go to the, the, the power of this guy, the kingdom. It says he ruled over 252 provinces of the world. Um, and he ruled over all of them. 52? Uh, in the days, huh? 52? It says, it says um, there were 252 provinces in the world. Oh, okay. And he ruled over them all. Wow. And in the days of Ahab, came of Israel, Israel was scattered on the hills like sheep that have no shepherd. Oh. I'm going to tag back on that. That's on tab. Okay. The generation of Ahab were idolater worker, idol worshippers, yet they went out to war and won. Why? Because there is none among them who spoke evil with Shonharah against his fellow Jew. Mm. 
uh, he, he made this command to go out. He commanded heal the Bethelite, go and build Jericho. Okay. Which is not a good thing. <laughs> like the, the former Jericho that was there where Rahab was, right? Yes. Oh, yeah, that ain't good. So this kind of goes into like the backdrop of our story. I just want to kind of read this little uh, excerpt and tab back on the sheep without no shepherd. Kind of get a time frame of what we're literally looking at in this half tour. Light as far it as up. the background concerned. Um, <clears throat> it mentions uh, the verse uh, 1634, 1 Kings 1634. In his days, Hail the Bethlehem built up Jericho with the death of Avram, his firstborn. He laid its foundations with the death of his, with Seguv, the youngest, he instilled the doors, like the word of Hashem that had spoken through the hand of Yehoshua, son of Nun. It says the word of Hashem refers to an edict issued by Yeshua forbidding anyone to build Jericho or name another city by that name, under penalty of all his children dying. Uh, Radak goes on to explain that, that Hill named this city Jericho, and between laying the foundation and installing the city gates, his children died. And the Gemara and Sanhedrin actually relates that Eliyahu and Ahav are two characters. They arrived at the same time to pay uh, this Ashiva a visit to the death of Hill's youngest child. And during that visit, Ahav and Eliyahu argued as to why his son died. Elahu was the one who said it was because of Yehoshua's oath, and Ahav claimed it was just a coincidence. And he he pointed this out based on the second paragraph of Kirk Shema, where it talks about Hashem punishing the Jews for worshiping idols um, by stopping the rains. Mm. And so Ahav, you know, he said, hey, the land's filled with idols. There's nothing I haven't bowed down to, and Hashem hasn't done that. So Eliyahu answered that the reason the rains have not stopped was because he prayed daily that it should not do so. Mm. But if he stopped davening for rain, Hashem would immediately bring a drought. Wow. And uh, it goes on of uh, just kind of this, this question. We talked about this question of, of who, who was Ahav and what did he believe? You know, why, a, why? What's that? Sleek Akrat. Just say one thing that takes like two seconds. Yeah, sure. Uh, Yaakov 517 that talks about Eliyahu was a man like us and he prayed for the rain. So like mm -hmm. this is a really cool reference to be like at this particular point because sometimes it's like we think uh, this is for the big drought. But this is actually, you know, also connected to the fact that he kept praying for rain while there was so much idolatry going on. Yes. Okay. Toda. No, I like that. And, you know, just on that note, I, I think we we might get caught up in the words like he was just a man. And, you know, Eli, Eliyahu was so much more of a sneak than many of us, if not all of us, will ever be. And so uh, I think the idea of that, that verse you know, is is the idea of why are they saying he's comparing his his just just a man, just a man, and he prayed for rain. Mm. You know, why it's it's like the stress that he was just like us. And I think the idea comes to teach us that, you know, just like Eliyahu stood in the breach and prayed for blessings upon people, so can we. Amen. 
And so I think that's more of the focus of the verse than downplaying Eliyahu and his his high lofty level. You know. Wow. Okay, back to our scheduled broadcast. Yes. So we have this question, why why was this not enough for him to really repent? You know, we have this huge there's this huge drought that comes in blade and he still doesn't repent at all. You know, and there's this question of of what what did he truly believe? You know, hmm. and it, it mentions that, that he was actually beyond this concept of redemption and he lost his portion in the world to come, come according to Gemara, because, uh, but on this other hand, you know, you see later that he refused to give up the Torah to Ben Haddad of Amran while agreeing to surrender his, his vast family and wealth. Wow. So later when he has to surrender and siege, he's willing to give his family, he's willing to give his wealth, but he holds on to the Sefer Torah. And so, like, what's going on with this guy? You know, we just saw that he didn't care about bowing down to idols. Hmm. And so Rav Yitzhak Shir actually explains that Achav truly loved and valued the Torah. In fact, he valued it more than his family and his wealth. Ooh. But it was the written Torah that he loved not the oral Torah. Wow. And as the oral Torah was concerned, Acha believed that he and his prophets were more in tune with the needs of the generation and more capable of interpreting the written Torah than Eliyahu and the rabbis. You know, and, you know, for, yeah. for example, his, his land was filled with Avodah Zarah, idol worship, rationalizing the idol worship of Moshe's day was primitive, unsophisticated, and a neg- uh, negation of true monotheism. But in contrast, he felt that the, the, these idols that he promulgated throughout Israel were not forbidden in the Torah because they captured the true essence of divine worship and made God understandable and accessible to all. Right? Oh. And so, yeah, that's, that's his, his whole argument. Is It's different now. Man, I, you know? I just don't seem to have any connection or any kind of relevance to that like i don't know you know it's just it's extremely interesting because it everything um his support for the false prophets of baal his attempts to join the torah leadership it was all predicated on his denial of the oral torah you know his argument hey well is is what he said greater than what moshe is what yehoshua said yeshua said what greater than what moshe said you know Wow. And to give a carte blanche, like this is totally a kosher way to worship Hashem with all this idol uh, process here. Yeah. That's, wow. This is interesting because we see that and um, going tagging back to he was in his day, the people were compared to a sheep without a shepherd. Right. I think this goes back on this idea that he loved the written Torah. He was all for the written Torah. But he did not believe in the oral Torah, and he thought he could make it up, and he could adjust laws he sees fit. Hmm. And, you know, we see that phrase that Yeshua uses, you're like sheep without a shepherd. Why? Because what's going on is in that day, who had control was the Sadducees. Oh. And they loved the written Torah. They said, yeah, let's, let's believe it, you know, let's do this, but... They hated and they completely opposed the oral Torah. Mm, mm, mm. And so that's what led people, you know, when you don't have that, 
you go whichever way and you make up your own rules and it causes destruction. Yep. Well, there is that. There's that. And so, you know, it'd be kind of like the equivalent today if, you know, um, Hebrew rooters were in charge of, I don't know, I guess all Uh, synagogues and worship and all that stuff. Okay, so that was super awkward. Just to just kind of put it in perspective, you know? Wow. I mean, wow. I don't mean anything bad about any of those people who are, who are in, in there. It's just that mentality of, of oh, so, so, so Torah leads you to become your, your own God, your own king over the whole world, where you can decide how to interpret a verse and how you want to act that out. And we can't do that. If this is what the Holocaust says, then we need to abide by that, you know, and not just make up our own, our own stuff, our own agenda, because that causes devastation, as we see from this half Torah. Let's just say the picture that I got, if that is the case, is the scene from the movie Speed, where the bus completely is not able to use the brakes anymore. Yes. And it's just like, we're going. I don't know where we're going, but we're going fast. (laughs) My goodness, man. That's so true. It's a perfect picture. (laughs) You know? Wow. I think this is, you know, and you you see Achav, and he also, you know, you think he's completely this pagan, but, you know, he has Ovadia as his chief steward. And he allows him to, to rescue these hundred prophets. He allows him to worship Hashem as he sees fit, you know. And this is why Eliyahu says, how long would you waver between two opinions? But he thought he was doing what was best, wow. you know. And, and the people were comfortable with this because, like, the, the whole sacrifices were, the whole scene was very, very similar to what they did, you know, oh, as far as you know, how they, how they prayed and they had certain recitals and they had certain dances and musical instruments. And so they said, Oh, this is kind of like what we do. And so this is okay. Wow. Kind of like what we do. (laughs) Exactly. And that's, that's what we really need to fear. We, we always think we need to fear what is, um, so opposed to us, but what's more scary than that is what is, is, is so similar Something so similar to what we do, but has this this twisted lie within it. You know? Are you talking about the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Oh, if you would love to elaborate that idea, I'd love to hear it. Well, I'm uh, going to source out Or Hakim on this, and I'm going to paraphrase it. Uh, but in a nutshell, pun intended because it was a tree <laughs> with fruit, um, the... Whole incident about eating from the tree came about through slightly twisting the truth. Because first of all, the fence law is in place that if we don't touch the tree, there is no way possible to eat from the tree. Not that we shouldn't touch it because it's not good to touch it. But I mean, come on, man, we are human beings and we have a yetzer that is upon us. And at this point, they didn't have the answer in them. It was external, but that's neither here nor there. As far as what I wanted to say is that the serpent was actually telling the truth 
that there were so many different things going on with this tree that it's not just the fruit. You can also eat the bark. You can eat the branches. You can eat the leaves. You don't have to just eat the fruit to experience this tree. And so the serpent was expounding upon different things about this tree that Hashem never ever mentioned to Adam and Hava before. And so there's this level of, well, if there's truth over here, then why do I have to stay with this truth that I've been told by the spirit of Hashem? Because you realize Adam and Hava were truly led by the spirit when they were walking with Hashem in the cool of the day. Because how can two walk on the same path unless they are in agreement? So the fact that there is external truth over here, way on the other side, in this barbed wire area that we have no business being in until we say the Kiddush on Shabbat. But that's another drosh. But anyway, just wanted to bring that up that, you know, Hashem is letting us know what the business is. He's given us the oral Torah and all of the the sages and all of the traditions that have been handed down through people like Mordecai, Haggai, um, Nehemiah, like all the get you sums of get you sums. Like if we can't be okay with those type of people helping us, propping us up and really coming alongside of us and helping us to stay on the right path, then man, it's not good. So anyway, that as you were just saying all this about taking truth and just having this slight twist to where it's, it's very, very similar, but it's, it's really just different. And it's just kind of like, wow, because that's how we ate the fruit in the first place. So if we want to continue on that path, then just remember where we are in this world right now with death and, and all sorts of pains and, and horrors and distresses. It's because we decided to say, well, we'll take what God says, but a little bit different from what he said. Yes. So, all right. Back to mm. you. That's true. So we get in the story and, you know, we have this meeting with Ovadia. And, you know, he says, he says, is it you contain, you know, when he says, is it you, Eliyahu? And there's this like this kind of this silent rebuke um, because, you know, he's like, is it you, Eliyahu, who decreed the famine, who callously watches or suffering without putting an end to it? Hmm. You know, and so he says, go and tell your master that the king that I'm here. And, you know, there's kind of this exchange. Um, that the, the Midrash kind of elucidates kind of what's going on. And Elijah is worried about being killed because he says, hey, if he goes and tells the master that Eliyahu is here and Eliyahu doesn't show up, then, you know, he's dead. You know, the king might expose him, his hiding the hundred prophets to uh, Isabel, and she'll have him killed instantly because um, she was a, a hunter of prophets. Ooh. A very wicked woman. And, and so he's afraid because, you know, Eliyahu... He has a habit of disappearing, so he's concerned about that. Mm. And <laughs> has a habit goes. of disappearing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he does. It's you know that's what Ovalia is, is talking about here. Man. And he actually does. He said, "Okay, I'll tell you. I'll I'll meet him. I'll meet him this day." And so he goes to uh, Ahav, and you know Eliyahu's this one in man, 
that all the prophets are trying to be being hunted down. Um, only reason, well, I won't get into that, but they're being hunted down. And so Ahav has this mind to capture him, um, to kill him immediately when he sees him. But as soon as he meets uh, Eliyahu, the great man that he was, he's, he's rendered completely powerless. Mm. And that's when he challenges him to this uh, duel, if you will, this duel of prophets, you know. <laughs> You say duel if you willed. <laughs> duel if you will. Yes. <laughs> nice. It's it, it's interesting because uh, the background picture of, of one of my my old phones is actually Elia who bringing down, calling praying down fire oh. <laughs> from heaven. So I was like, oh wow, that's that's fitting for this this half Torah. Oh man. <laughs> but so it mentions this struggle because there's. There's the prophets of Baal and there's the Asherah prophets. And if you don't know, this is, they introduce this, um, this whole idea of Asherah and Baal worship again. That's what Yezebel brought in. Um, because you gotta think, Ahav, he's, he's this, he's in a sense like a great king from the worldly perspective. He literally subdued all Israel's enemies. No one can touch them. They're like a military, um, I don't, I don't like juggernaut, if you will. Good night. Like, like untouchable. And a lot of this power came because, you know, he married the Phoenician princess, Isabel. It solidified his bonds, but in came this worship of foreign Canaanite deities. Mm. And so you have, you know, uh, Ashraf, she was like this chief male, uh, chief female deity, is like bestowing a mother goddess who represents this limbless tree trunk planted in the ground. And Baal was her, like, son-slash-consort, consort, Sika. And he was, like, the male fertility deity. Wow. And responsible for rain, crops, livestock. And it, a lot of this incul- incorporated, like, cult prostitution, um, sympathetic magic, meant to ensure uh, fertility. And so Ashra was, like, with like the groves and Baal was with animal sacrifice and divination. Oh, so like Exodus. So, yes, exactly. Okay. <laughs> exactly like that. And so this is kind of a back background of a little more about these, these two main sources of I- idolatry that are brought in. And you definitely see it as a showdown because what are they doing a showdown for? It's for the rain. Yeah. Like this is really the whole reason he, he wants, Eliyahu wants to bring the rain back. But he doesn't want to bring it back at the cost of um, of people not repenting. Hmm. You know, he wants to bring it, show this this huge thing, so people repent, and then he could bring the rain back and show them, hey, it's it's God who gives it, not all these fertility gods. You know, small g. Right. Oh. So he summons yeah. them. He he's. Um, it's this idea of they have they pull out this bull. He lets them choose this bull. And the bull will not budge for these prophets of Baal at all. And so what they do, they try to bring in these 400 um, Asherah prophets, you know, because they, they think that the, the merit of these prophets that Isabel has at her command will will make this bull move. You know, trying and to animate a, move. did you just say that? What? And trying to animate a bull? Um, no, they're trying to make this bull move, and so I mean it's it's interesting that the bull is used for this this offering, considering you know the golden calf. 
Yeah, that's wow. So, okay, we got another another uh, connection. Okay, and it's it's interesting. It's because it, it mentioned this poor beast that stood its ground. It, it gave out this loathful mourn. Um, and Eliyahu understood this bull protesting because he didn't want to be offered as a sacrifice to Baal. And he says, why am I worse than my twin brother? It bleated. I was chosen as an offering that will anger the Almighty while my brother will serve as a sacrifice to him. And Eliyahu tries to sue the animal says, hey, because um, your cooperation, it'll, it'll be a Kedusha Shem. It'll show these people um, that his Shem is real. But still, you know, the bull wasn't having it. And, you know, Eliyahu ended up having to, to push the bull alongside with them to make it, to allow them to offer it and cut him up to offer a sacrifice. Man. So it's, it's kind of interesting that this, this animal, you know, had more of a reverence for God than the people. Um, wow. But there's, what's that? I'm just, I'm just stunned by that. That is insane. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. You know, um, and you, you get to the point of understanding, we're about to get to the point of understanding the deceit of these prophets. Because um, it mentions they weren't at all legitimate with how they built their quote-unquote altar. Uh-oh. You know, it mentions that they had one of their close friends, his name was Hiel from uh, Bet El, and he constructed the altar for them. But what's interesting is... Uh, he um, he carved out this this hollow in the wood, you know, where he would hide out and he would kindle a fire for them, mm. and it would light up the whole thing. And so that was their plan. Like the man and behind the, the curtain in the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's it's all it's all this big show with them. Good night. And. You know, when it mentions that uh, when they've been out to cry, a ball answer us, you know, and it mentions that there is this unearthly stillness. There's this dead silence. There wasn't even an echo because what they expected, they expected full of people. They said they said there's at least going to be an echo when they call it anan, anenu, answer us. You know, they thought to hear the echo of the word new, you know, and they would have later pretend this was this was their God's reply. Mm. You know, but. But there's this dead silence, not even giving them this opportunity. <laughs> and, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's this, this very, very hilarious scene that's taking place, you know. And, you know, uh, Eliyahu, he literally, you know, makes fun of them. Wait, wait, you wait, know? wait, wait, wait. You're not going to mention what happened to the man behind the curtain? I mean, oh, underneath I will, the... I will. Okay. I will. I will. Don't worry. You're keeping this in make, suspense. Just want to set the scene first. Oh, okay, okay, okay. He starts, he starts making fun of them. He says, oh, maybe maybe he's consulting with his advisors. You know, maybe he's chasing enemies at war. Or maybe he's attending the bathroom, attending to his needs. Ooh. You know, according, according to Rashi, and these, these ideas that he's um, saying to them. And so, essentially, he's, he's, he's too busy to hear you. Ooh. You know, if he's there at all, you know, and so it means it goes on to this, this idea of Hiel and he remained inside this hollow. And this is waited while you see in the verse where they're jumping up and down on, on their altar. 
um, because they were trying to get his attention. They're trying to signal him, hey, start the fire. Hey, start the fire. No. You know, this is why they, they start jumping up and down. Oh, and, my <laughs> You know, this is where Eliyahu starts deriding them, and they start cutting themselves. Um, and, they, and there's this kind of illusion and sort of some commentaries that they hope to use the spears to maybe light a spark, and that would hit the altar. Mm-hmm. Um, and who knows, they probably, uh, this isn't anywhere that I found, but they probably put some sort of igniting fuel somewhere yeah. on it. You know they um, did. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't water. They didn't pour in water in there like Eliyahu did. <laughs> <laughs> you know? They were thirsty. <laughs> well, it's amazing because the Almighty, he sent a snake to kill Gil. Oh. So it, he went in this hollow and the snake comes up and bites him and kills him to prevent a desecration of Hashem's name. Snake eyes. Snake eyes. Struck him. <laughs> Struck him. Strike. You're out. <laughs> Man. Okay, so just a quick tag that you contrast that or compare and contrast to uh, the... Wow. Compare and contrast to Acts chapter 28 where there is a um, a Kiddush Hashem, a sanctification of Hashem's name, when a former crazy uh, non-believing Jewish man was killing a bunch of people, and now he was just like, that was bad, I'm sorry, Teshuva, Yeshua, and my name is Shaul, and we are shipwrecked, and, uh, you know, that's part of uh, my you know, part of some reproof that's continuing to happen, but, you know, everybody's cold, and I want to make a fire for everybody, I want to warm everybody up, and make sure we have something to eat, and oh my goodness, there's a poisonous snake, it bit me on the hand, that's cool, get off of me, <laughs> so that's, uh, that's actually chapter 28 for everybody, uh, but I just, you think about the, the same scenario that there are people watching, there's a snake, and it's going to bite somebody. And if the person was trying to desecrate the name of Hashem, he died. But if the person was trying to sanctify the name of Hashem, he lived. Because everyone was looking at Shaul like, there is no way in the world that that man, that that guy, can be remotely a believer in Mashiach Yeshua. He cannot be a Lapid. And Hashem was like, well, yes, he can. I'm going to send another snake to bite him. And then he's just going to fling it off in the fire like, oh, what was that? So anyway. That's true. You know, it shows, shows the difference that, you know, Shaul actually was a righteous man. He was a Pharisee, you know, and so he didn't he didn't die because he wasn't like unlike Heel, he he was not desecrating Hashem's name. It just... We're misinterpreting what he said. Oh, man. The distinguished you know, gentleman. <laughs> but he wasn't the only person who's who seemed to be put in a, uh, like, this bad light, like, oh, well, he's doing something that's against Torah. You know, because Eliyahu appears to be doing something like that as well. Uh-oh. We you have know, a Shaul and Eliyahu comparison? We, oh, man. We do. It says the halakha from the time when the temple was constructed in Jerusalem, it was forbidden to offer sacrifices elsewhere. Um, there is uh, there is a procedure, and you know I say this with a little bit of resistance because I, I don't want people to take advantage of this whatsoever because you know uh, but if you read it carefully you can't 
it's talking about he utilized this procedure known as haras shoah, mm. which is it's literally like the command of the hour, which allows a great Jewish leader, like a prophet, a true navi, to temporarily override a Torah prohibition under certain very, very extreme, uh, extenuating circumstances. Wow. And so this is why he was allowed to sacrifice on a Bahama uh, outside of the temple. Wow. And so it was a very, very, uh, you know, extreme case to bring people towards repentance. You know, it mentions in 1831, you know, Eliyahu, he took 12 stones, corresponding to the number of tribes of the children of Yaakov, to whom the word of Hashem came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And so there's this question, uh, why, why mention this name change? Why, why this reference to Yaakov um, when Eliyahu was trying to prepare this, this, the Kedush Hashem? And it, Rashi, you know, he comments that Hashem revealed, actually revealed to Yaakov Avinu that there would come a time when a sacrifice would be offered to him, not on a Mizbeach in the Behamekdash, but Abba Bahama, Abba Bama, like this is a, a portable altar. Right. And Hashem, but Hashem will gladly accept it. And so this is actually um, a reference to Eliyahu Navi's altar that he built on the 12 stones. This is what he was referencing here. Mm. And the name Israel, why means in Israel? Because it includes within the name of Hashem, uh, Aleph Lamed, like El, hinting to an essential relationship between Hashem and his people. Wow. And so it mentions, it mentions Sar, El, being the name of Hashem. Come on. Like Sar, like Prince, and then El, God. Well, and what's that? I was just going to say, on top of that, again, to make sure no one takes advantage of this, uh, this is Eliyahu we're talking about. Yes, that's so, a very good point. This is the not... one who's supposed to precede Mashiach. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, like I said, we're nowhere on the level. And I think that's why uh, I prefaced when when you you quote the verse um, that he was just a, he was a man just like us, you know, like he, we're nowhere on his level, um, you know. Uh, that whole thing is there so that we would be we would strive for his level. We'd strive to his level. Why? Because he's the one who brings Mashiach, right? And right. we would strive to bring Mashiach. Amen. So uh, this whole this whole idea is a reflection of the essence of the name, the relationship, um, the essence of this name thereby re reflects um, uh, that the relationship between Hashem and his people continues under all circumstances and at all times. And he, he demanded that it be brought on Har Carmel, Mount Carmel, and not the Bay of Mikdash. And this was actually for the benefit of, of Klaus Rael, to prove that Shem actually watches over them and guides them wherever they are. And so they're just in the middle of drought. They, they worship in idols. The prophets are being killed. The people aren't in a good place. King Ahav, he has everything. He has wealth. He rules the whole world. But in that, he created this huge divide between him and the common people. They had nothing. They, and they didn't have anything to eat or, or drink at times. They were starving. And this is kind of where you come to the point of, you know, that the woman who Eliyahu goes to, who has nothing, you know, he fills the jars of oil, those stories around this time period. Wow. And, you know, it's just interesting because, 
He says this is the best place to show that Shem not only exists, but completely controls everything we do. And by building this Bama, Bama, the 12 of the 12 stones reflects the 12 tribes of Israel. He was actually demonstrating that Hashem's love for his nation and reminding them even outside the Behagnathash, his power is unparalleled. Get you some. And so this is why he signified that. He says, hey, look, uh, you are so far off from the halakha, how you're supposed to be walking out your relationship with Hashem. You're so far off, but you're just like this altar over here. You're so far from where you need to be, but Hashem can still have a direct impact in your life. And he can still accept your your offerings of repentance. And this is, you kind of go in the, the last uh, couple of verses and you see that's what happens to the people. Wow. Um, you know, it, it mentions this idea of, um, you know, it goes into contrast Eliyahu versus their altar and how he built it, how his diligence versus theirs. Okay. And um, of course, we know we we covered why it's why it's permitted, why he offered it there. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting because it says he dug a trench around the back the size of a hundred times fifty almost. It's about two hundred and one hundred feet. The depth's not really mentioned here, but okay. these dimensions are the exact same. If you've been paying attention very closely to the courtyard of the Mishkan. Oh. And it, it was as if to say, just as this Mishkan atoned for the sin of golden calf, so the miracle at the trench would atone for Bnei Israel's idolatry. So this mis, this misbeck that he builds is like he's constructing this this tabernacle, right? And why did he construct it? He constructed for the atonement of Bnei Israel. And. You know, going back to Eliyahu was just was a man just like us, and he prayed for the rain. You know, <laughs> why did he pray for the rain? It was to bring atonement. That's what. That's why we're 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 com- he's making a comparison because we are to 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 help build an atonement for our brothers, help pray for them, help build them up. You know, wow. uh, I might tag on that uh, a little later. Tab on that subject. Okay. But Eliyahu's actions um, were actually a type to quench the fire, as opposed to them. They they hit a guy in there. They do all these little tricks. But he poured the water three times in the remembrance of the three patriarchs. We mentioned the twelve stones. Mm. Uh, there is twelve jars of water linked to the twelve tribes mm. as well. And you know it's interesting because he had his one of his students, Eliyahu poured water over his master's fingers and they miraculously began to flow with water like tin wells filling up the entire tremendous ditch Good and these people night. were just spellbound hmm. what was that uh, just I'm, I can't breathe <laughs> man yeah like this you imagine the, what's going on here he's pouring it with all this water it's it's crazy it's like what is he doing he's just filling this thing with water that he's supposed to light on fire what's going on Oh my and, goodness! You realize you're you're really like elucidating Ose Shalom Bim Romav right now. Like Hashem makes Shalom between the primordial elements. 
Like, mm-hmm. water and fire should cancel each other out. But yet, not when it comes to a shim. Like, in the Mishkan, everything that just don't make any sense to us from a, a scientific standpoint, Hashem is like, okay, my little kids, let me show you something. Like, we're going to put fire and metal, and we're going to put that inside of a big room of curtains, which is in between um, another big fire altar filled with dirt and wood that should burn down and collapse on itself. And at the same time, you're going to be slaughtering animals all day. So there should be, like, all sorts of innards and flies everywhere, but it smells so good. I mean... It's just like fire hazard central, crazy, like this should not be right. And the Shem is like, oh, say shalom, being real mouth. So, anyway. Man. Make peace in his heights. Make peace upon us, upon all Israel. Amen. I mean, no. okay, I, I just can't let it go. Th- just okay. think about this, Hussies. Think about this. The, the Mishkan, the temple, it should be considered and classified as a slaughterhouse. Mm. Like they're kosher slaughtering animals. They're not like doing the whole tasing and, and butchering like a, a, a non-Jew. But I mean, come no. on, man. <laughs> that's yeah. that's one of many things that's happening. And it's just like, it, no, no, this is the this is the holy temple right now. It's amazing, you know, just the whole the whole idea of, of slaughtering animals. Like you mentioned, like they, they cut them, and it's just like instant, instant death. They don't feel anything. They cut that main artery, and it's done, you know. Mm, um, but it, it's interesting that you mentioned it, it looks, if you look at the Mishkan, if you look at this altar, it looks like, from the worldly perspective, it looks like just like a slaughterhouse. But it is a source of blessing. It is a source of life. Man, you know, and that, that's you know, okay. Tab, tab on that because I want to just make sure we we finish finish story and we come back on the the deeper aspects of this. Okay, well, I won't mention uh, your shoe on the crucifixion stake, but anyway, uh, mention that later. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> so uh, we have a scene. You know, he put, uh, pours water his maps fingers. The tin wells fill up an entire ditch. People are spellbound. He has everyone just come and inspect the altar. Prophets about all the people. Uh, it's like thorough. And if anyone knew what a fake altar would look like, it would be the prophets about. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> they would know because they set one up. Um, so Man. the odds were in their favor and they still lost. How about that? Oh. How about that? Do you see that? How about that? I see what you did there. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> you know. He wasn't actually commanded to do all this. This is something he did of his own accord. And so he's he asked the shame, he says, Answer me in the merit in my merit and the merit of my students. I'm ready to lose all my merits to pay for this miracle so that your great name should become sanctified. So there should be a Kadusha Shem here. Mm-hmm. And um and he says, So that people would know you are God. You know, that's what that's his whole prayer. Interesting, interestingly enough, this is what David says when he's about to take on Goliath. Oh, come on. So they should know, essentially that whole idea, so they should know you are God, so they should know that you are alive, and you are, you know, 
you were going to be resurrected, if you will, in their eyes. Good. There's going to be a renewing, a rekindling of the relationship here. Uh, And so it goes on why his his tefillah was answered. There's two reasons. The Midrash quotes and says he finally made use of the merit of the forefathers, um, which he had not done at the beginning of his prayer. And then two, he prayed at Minka time. Ooh. And so there's this this site uh, from the rabbis. A person should be Scorpius and Mika. Uh, Nachman, Rav Nachman studied with Scorpius and observance of Shachrit. And the other said in Mariv. And they all said it for different reasons. And we'll touch on that um, later. Okay. Um, Can you hear it all? But each sage had a point. Um, which is summed up in our obligation according to proper devotion to every tefillah, every prayer. Um, and then, you know, we get to the point where this fire actually descends upon the Mizbeach, and everyone saw it. No one could claim that this was anything but a miracle. Everyone was, was elevated through this. Everyone was stirred to repentance through this act. Um, even, even the wicked were. And, you know, it was like this huge blue, blow to the face to idolatry, and everything. Um, and so it just says, just as Eliyahu caused Ahab's generation due to Shuba, so will be so he'll be in the future messenger who will turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, Malachi 3.24. Eliyahu hinted at this when he prayed, answer me Hashem, so that people will know that you are Hashem, the true God. He implied, if you are answering me today, they will have faith in me when you send me to announce the future redemption. Mm. And so, you know, just just a couple couple of things from this. We mentioned that he carved out the dimensions of the Mishkan, and you know, there's plenty of sources. Even Rambam, who we know as as the Halakha guide, he wrote the Mishnah Torah. He wrote the Thirteen Principles of Faith. Um, he sent a letter to his son, essentially saying, "Son, you should know that the 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 Mishkan." is in the form of a man it represents a man and he goes on to elaborate those ideas what um yes rambam rambam mr hashem is not corporeal yeah that guy okay so that's from uh uh Luez as well Mm -mm. um so it's it's just interesting. So we have this idea that he he carves out this idea this 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 dimensions of the court of the the Mishkan the tabernacle, and we we touch back on the idea of the altar when we talk about the altar and about the third temple, um, and Yechezkel, and we said it stands for for four things, you know Mechilta, uh, Mechila, excuse me, forgiveness, then you have uh, Zachut merit. Bracha, blessing, chai, the life. And so uh, Eliyahu is showing them what uh, what uh, a mizbeach means. It's not something hollow that you could just turn off and, and, and turn on, right? He, he shows them what a mizbeach means in that, you know, he, he talks about this forgiveness aspect. That's, that's why he, he drew it in the, the dimensions of the tabernacle. You know, he mentioned, he talks about merit. He brings on the merit of the forefathers. That's the zechut, the, the uh, um, of Mizbeach. And then he talks about uh, the whole idea of brach and chai are hidden with this will bring the rain. Once they repent, 
you know, through this act of what's going to take place on the Mizbeach, there will be blessing, there will be life, you know, because the rain will come down. And he's showing them what it means to be a Mizbeach. Wow. So that would mean that he turned the Mishkan into a mikvah, pretty much. Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting concept. I agree, you know. And I think, you know, we are representative of, of this Mizbeach. You know, like we said, everything, he built it at the Har Kamel, you know, instead of the temple. So even though you strayed this far, the, the, the God can still come down to you. It says, your Lord, your God is consuming fire. You can still have this relationship with God dwelling with you. Yep. You know, um, and it mentions this idea that when when the, the fire came down, it quenched the water completely. Um, wow. But it's um, interesting um, because it mentions this whole idea of Minka. And it mentions two factors. It mentions the whole idea of the merit of the forefathers. He made use of the merit of the forefathers. And he made use, it said he prayed at Minka time. And I think these ideas are truly connected. Um, we've mentioned before, um, and I know you have on some of your podcasts that the patriarchs represent one of the animals sacrificed on the Mizbeach. Yes. Right. You said Abraham, the bull, you know, Yitzhak, the, uh, the, goat. the, the ram, Yaakov, the sheep. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's this whole idea that each patriarch prayed at a certain time you know and you so abraham represents shachrit yitzhak represents mika israel represents represents mariv okay come on and and all all of these guys um it says the the letter shin actually represents the three patriarchs those three bobs if you will the, the patriarch represents the shin <laughs> and the shin is in the shape of of this this fire right come on and we'll come back to that in a second what and i want i want to uh yeah, tab on that oh man and go back to this idea so why why is minka time stress why do they come to this conclusion the rabbis you know they say they're all important they yeah. say minka time yeah. is the most important why is the most important why? And you look at it, it's because Micha is the fulfillment of all the prayers. <laughs> right? Because in, in Hebrew, we think of it as the second prayer, but but you're looking from the, the Jewish perspective, the day starts at night. So the first prayer is actually Yaakov's prayer, the prayer of Mariv. Good night. Right? So you have Mariv, you have Shachrit, and then you have Mincha. Mm. Right? And this is the fulfillment of all those prayers. And you, when, when we refer to Tefillah, it refers to Shemone Ezra, which has how many blessings in it? 18. 18. Gamachi of Chai. You know? How are you doing? Chai. <laughs> doing well? No. <laughs> so, you have Chai, you take that 18, you multiply by 3, and you get 54. Mm. Right? And this is the gematria, the same gematria as Babin. That's right. Which is in the sun. Mm. And this is actually used 
and and references scripture exactly with those letters as and they did not believe in the son of Yeshai. Really? Yes. <laughs> and so you have um, this illusion that that when you're praying these these three prayers of Shimon Ezra, you're literally you know, being immersed in the sun. You're literally abiding in him. <laughs> and it's interesting because we talked about how this Mizbech represents us, right? He's doing it as a representation of the people. And, you know, who who is Eliyahu uh, compared to later on in Yeshua's day? Oh, Yochanan ben Zachariah. Yes. And Yochanan, he said this phrase. He says, I mikvah you in water. I immerse you in water. Right? And what did Eliyahu do? He poured water on the Mizbeach. <laughs> okay, but then he says this. But heal, there's one coming after me. He'll, he'll mikvah you in fire. Yep. Right, and what happens here? God brings down this fire. Babin, Babin. Right, and we we uh, we mentioned Babin, right? We mentioned this whole idea of these three patriarchs. That's what the three pronged vav, vav uh, oh, sorry, uh, shin represents. Mm-hmm. Right, you have Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Those three prayers coming into one. But Ginsburg comments that breaking down the gematria of of the shin. It's made up of three vavs and four yuds, and you add all that up, that'll be 58, plus the shin itself is 358, which is the gabachi of Mashiach. Cool. And so this is this is the fire that's coming down, Woo. right? And notice, it was God who brought the fire, Eliyahu just prayed for it. Because he's supposed to come before Mashiach. Yes. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> he brings him, he heralds Mashiach, and so this allusion to him heralding Mashiach, heralding him this this shin, this fire, this consuming fire coming down and igniting our altar, and us being consumed in the sun, right? Mm-hmm. But then, this all alludes to this is a deeper meaning of why we pray these three prayers, why it's so important to pray these three prayers of the Amidah. Um, wow. But we, we mentioned, so you kind of take that idea, the three patriarchs, are all connected um, with the sacrifices, with the prayers, and when they're connected, when they're unified, you you see Mashiach through that. Mashiach is the embodiment of all these different parts, like you know, one body, many members kind of deal. Oh, no, you didn't. <laughs> yeah, but in case you think that's a far reach, he he says, you know, answer me, answer me, please, Hashem. And why was his to feel accepted? Um, you know, it mentions uh, made use of the merit of the forefathers, all three of them put into one. Uh, you know, Yeshua was um, executed at Micha time. Mm. Right? Right. And so um, it's interesting because you take that phrase, Aneni, Hashem, Aneni, answer me, Hashem, answer me. This has in it, it it's the gematria of, same gematria as uh, the Shekhinah. Plus one, you know. Uh, it's also the gematria of David ben Yishai. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And this gematria is, ready for this number? Bring it. 386. Oh, stop what it. Is, what is that, Amet? Yeshua. Yeshua. 
So, Aneni Hashem Aneni, it says, answer me, answer me, Hashem, what name is he praying in? <laughs> He's praying in David ben Yesha. He's praying for the pre- very presence of God to come down here in the, the Mishkan, the human form. And who is that one? It's Yeshua. <sighs> And so this is the you know you can't can't make this stuff up. Well, you just said Yeshua is divine, so I don't know what to do with you now. I mean, there is that you know it's this, this whole fire. The Shin represents a fire, also represents Shaddai. You know, um, it hangs on the our mezuzah. You know, we said it represents Mashiach, right? Hangs on the mezuzah, much like Mashiach hung on the execution stake. Man. You know, represents a fire. Shem says, I am Lord your God, am a consuming fire. Well. And so this is the merit he prayed in and allowed these people to have their hearts turned around. You know, you, you mentioned this, you know, Aneni also has the gamache of 180, alluding to this, this 180 degree turnaround that the people did afterwards. Um, and then if you take the two uh, Ananis, answer me, answer me, you get 360. Um, <laughs> like making full circle. Making full circle to when? To when we are born. Ooh. Allowing us to be born again. And who does this? It says, Aneni Hashem Aneni. Hmm. Who's, who's allowing us to be born again? It's Hashem. Right? And the whole phrase is Yeshua. Wow. Aneni Hashem Aneni. Uh. And so... 360 degrees, going all the way back to when we were born, where we were being taught, torn in the room before we forget it. Can I 360 tag with you then? Do it. Because you said that he's making this Bama in a place that's not in Yerushalayim, where Hashem's name is, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if you remember back to Parsha Beshalach, specifically in the Haftarah, there were two mountains that were complaining that they didn't get the Torah given up on them. And Hashem was like, thank you for being so zealous. I'm choosing Mount Sinai, but I got something special for y'all. One of them was Mount Carmel. And here we are, right? Mm-hmm. If you do the gematria of Mount Carmel, it becomes 290. 290 is the gematria of Bereshit 617, a little known phrase Bo Ruach Chaim, which is in it is the breath of life. And if you do the initial letters of Bo Ruach Chaim, it is Bet Resh Chet. Spell that backwards. It is Chorev. Oh my goodness. The original. Yeah, it ain't over yet though. Okay. Because. Remember, Chorev is also the same as Cherev, which is the sword that spins to and from and backwards and forwards and upside down and all around. And it's a Shuva sword. A Cherev is the sword that was placed at the entrance of the garden with the Keruvim. So you got a sword and a Keruvim. We're talking about the top of the Ark. Okay, the Holy Ark that sits in the Holy of Holies. You got the Kerubim, and you got the Shekinah, which is the sword of the Torah, sword of the Spirit, basically, which is the Ruach of life, right? So it's spinning. Yes. And you said, 
with your crazy self that still needs to get some help that this is not a keep out sign. This is a code and a call to imitate that this is how we're supposed to be. The Keruvim are like little children. Hashem Mashiach says, yeah, wow, I said that. Okay, I mean it. Okay, Baruch Hashem. Hashem and Mashiach said, uh, suffer not the little children to come to me. And to whom does the kingdom belong to? Such as these. Because the Keruvim are children and they are the closest to Hashem. They're on top of the ark. And you got the fact that you're making shuva, you're coming in. And the sword is all that whole picture there. So anyway, um, now here comes the 360. The last letters of this phrase, Bo Ruach Chaim, is Vav Chet Mim. If you add those letters together, that is 40 plus 8 plus 6, which equals 54 Ba Ben. Wait, can you say that again? <laughs> Bo Ruach Elohim. The last letters of that phrase is Vav. Chet mem forty plus eight plus six equals fifty four. Ba ben. Man, been doing some background Camacho. That's why I was quiet. <laughs> wow. <laughs> anyway. I thought you were just being an attentive uh, audience. I was. I heard what you said, and I was like, "Are you kidding me? This is no, I know, right?" I, that's why I have three suits. Okay, I got one to listen, one to search, and then one to just be like, "Hey, how's everybody doing?" Multitasking. <laughs> and, you know, I just got one question. How long will you dance between two opinions? Oh. <laughs> How long will you dance between three suits? No, it's <laughs> as long as it takes. <laughs> as long as it takes. Book a dishesham, Man. Okay, I just I just need to say that was absolutely like you just really did such an amazing job bringing that down. And, and I'm thankful well, Hashem. for Hashem showing us like that's not just there's so many different ways we can approach this and it's the same thing. <laughs> you know, it's it's um so amazing. Um uh they 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 have this phrase towards the end you know they say they said who Elohim who Elohim and you know there's this explanation that who Elohim that these words were placed in their mouths from heaven when they accepted the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of Hashem and when the altar built it was a, it was a time of Edratzon this time of this time of grace because the fire came down and consumed the offerings right and so it's it's just interesting because it's it's the consuming the offerings, accepting that's the showing that the offerings was accepted, that's referring to a time of grace. And so later when Shoal writes in his writings, now is the time of Hashem's favor, what does he mean by that? Oh it's it's that he has accepted the offering of Mashiach. Mm. It it pleased him to to crush him and, and bruise him and you know. Um Mm. And so they later later goes on uh, to talk about this this phrase that we say is is used twice because items of uh, kadusha have both an internal and external aspect to them, and this repetition of these words signified that that union, uh, the union of both aspects, was complete. 
So if you ever want a deeper meaning, why things are repeated uh, sometimes. Um, but, you know, interestingly, this is uh, a phrase we say, you know, who Elohim, who Elohim is a phrase we say on Yom Kippur. Man, we so also say it for Arvit as well. Yes, yes. You know, but keep going with Yom Kippur. Keep going. Like Yom Kippur was that a day of day of atonement, right? Mm-hmm. This is said twice at Mount Carmel, but it's repeated seven times at the conclusion of the Neila prayer, Ooh. marking the culmination of a Yom Kippur service. It's the very last last thing, you know, and so. Mm. It's just, it's interesting that, you know, our, our not just our, our prayers are taken directly from Scripture, directly inspired from Scripture, so point out to why we should do this, but even more interesting is this whole scene that we just talked about, it's like, we are the Mishbeach being immersed in, in Mashiach, um, uh, and this phrase, what happens after that, is what's repeated on the Day of Atonement. Yep, and it's just it's just interesting because the number seven, uh, according to Midrash Tachuma, actually alludes to Mashiach, and we repeat this phrase seven times instead oh of two. Oh my goodness! And so this is how we close out the day that that we are purified, that we're atoned, um, and so it really comes back to this story here and everything we uncovered within it. Well, I mean, that is when the second set of tablets were given. Wow. There's that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, did you clear all your tabs out? Um, well, everything that we'll be able to get to tonight, I think. Okay. Well, so. I don't like this part, but, you know, bless Hashem anyway, because I will rejoice in all things. That is the end of our Haftarah podcast, but not without practical takeaways. Yes, yes. I was thinking, I was like, oh no, it's closing. I'm so he, sad. He forgot again. It's the closing of the gates. It's Kolnidre. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay. Anyway, practical takeaways. Man, what is happening? What is not happening? (laughs) (laughs) That's the real question. Well, um, would you like to go first? Oh, man, I don't know. (laughs) Or would you like me to go first to give you some time to collect yourself? Yes, yes, I would. (laughs) (laughs) Because I got my practical takeaway on standby here. Um, I don't normally do this, but when I do, it's with Legends of the Jews. Oh my goodness. (laughs) So, keeping it... I know, right? Shameless over here. Okay, so keeping it Kitisa, right? Mm -hmm. One of the most epic things of this week's Torah portion is Moshe saying, erase my name. When he says, erase my name, it literally means remember my name. (laughs) <laughs> so it's it's a pun in its finest if you just study the word erase my name it's uh it's amazing but 
I don't want to go here because that's that's not what I want to say for my practical takeaway. My practical takeaway from the Legends of the Jews here about that scenario. Hashem, first of all, is telling Moshe he needs to go down the mountain because Moshe is not a Talmud that is above his master because when the people at the Tower of Babel were sinning and Hashem needed to come down and see them, he did. So Moshe, same. There's a Tower of Babel going on in the camp right now. I mean, Golden Calf going on in the camp right now. You need to go down and see him, just like I did. But anyway... With all that being said, it goes right into this. It was only after long and fervent prayers that Moshe succeeded in quite propitiating Hashem. And had hardly he returned from Hashemayim when he again repaired thither to advance before God his intercession for Israel. He was ready to sacrifice himself for the sake of Israel, i.e. blot my name out. I don't even exist for the sake of them to exist. So it says, as soon as punishment had been visited on the sinners, he turned to God with the words, O Lord of the world, Rebon Kol Ha'olamim. Oh, man. I have not I have now destroyed both the calf and its idolaters. What cause for ill feeling against Israel can now remain? The sins these committed came to pass because you heaped gold and silver up on them so that the blame is not wholly theirs. Yet now if you will forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of your book which you have written. Wow. Shaul says the same thing about the the Kol Yisrael and, and the Egedit to the Romans in chapter 9. He says that I wish that I could trade my salvation, literally, for the sake of my brethren to come into the the knowing of Messiah Yeshua, the faith, the actual true righteousness of Hashem. And there's this, this aspect when you really just kind of look at everything that's going on and what Eliyahu is doing, saying that, you know, I, I wish to wipe out my merits for the sake of this right here. You know, uh, it is that big of a deal what we do every single moment and every single day. And every single night with Arimuna and Hashem, especially as Lapid, because we're called to that standard, that high call, that upward call in Mashiach Yeshua. We have a higher standard. And sometimes it kind of gets, um, there's distractions where we feel like we lack things because we don't have a, a shul that is having all these regularly attended classes like every day of the week with minion after minion after minion every day of the week, you know, and uh, we're, we're our shulchanim, you know, our tables where we can stand in class and, and dive in with our books and things like that and, and just read from the scroll every single day. Like, and sometimes it's just kind of like, why can't we have these things? But I tell you what, we have something that is so epic and it is the fact that 
we have this life or death that we walk between every single moment, you know, that Hashem is allowing us to really put it all on the line, all on the line. You know, this is not just a small podcast that we're doing. And Hasis, I have to tell you, like every single time we do this, it's just like it is a mikvah. It is truly a mikvah for me. And, um, you know, to know that this is going out for the sanctification of Hashem's name and Bezrat Hashem, someone will hear this and be on fire for Hashem and, and bring more divine sparks in. But we lay it down every single day. You know, when we daven, when we're observant, when we're fulfilling mitzvot, when we're saying brachas, you know, it's not a little thing. It is a very, very big thing. So, um, self-sacrifice is the least to say, but, you know, pretty much that's that's kind of where I wanted to go with this. Because Kitisa is all about the head, the Rosh, being lifted up. Lifting up our head because of our Teshuvah. But also knowing that our head literally was lifted up, that all men are drawn unto him. And it is our atonement and it is our redemption and it is our teshuva. And like, that's all I got. Man, that's amazing. Bruce you know, um, I love that you, you hit the point. <clears throat> I love everything you said, really. But um, I just want to stress on that point you said um when we, we lay, lay it down and talk about our Torah, we're laying down our Torah. You know, Mashiach says, you know, no greater love than this that a man lay down his life for his brothers. Mm. And um, the word laid down there, if you look in the Greek, um, I, don't, I don't recall off the top of my head, but uh, I've looked it up. And one of the ideas there is to set down like a, a discourse of, right? And then he says that he laid down, right, set, like have a discourse of, like uh, like a lecture, if you will, his life for his brothers. Well, what is life? Life is the Torah, right? I said before you, life and death, right? Mm. It's referring to the Torah. And so one of the ideas of loving your brother and laying down your life is, is by laying down, discussing the Torah, which brings y'all life, which brought life into existence. Wow. Um, and, and another idea of that is, you know, the, the gamache of life, Chai. You know, you, you, know, you did an excellent podcast with the Colonel Talmud on, on that idea. It's amazing. Totally. Um, but, you know, that's one of the gamaches of 18, well known, is, is Chai. And the Shemoni Esrei, we pray 18 blessings. It's not a coincidence because every blessing we're saying in there is not just for us it's stressed we bless us oh. you know make peace in your heights and make and upon us upon all israel you know we, we close it off with that oh, man. and so we're literally attaching self to life three times a day and abiding in the son of, of god by doing that right as we stressed out from these these whole gematrias um that was yokanon 1513 by the way you want you want to say what it says in the verse? Real uh, quick? Yes, uh, the verse that says, <clears throat> "Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends." Yes. So that concept you could interpret um, as you know, praying for your brother, 
you know, discoursing tour with your brother. And of course you could take it in the literal of literally laying down, uh, of your life of sacrifice yourself as well, you know, but also in the ways that Mashiach did before he laid his life down, you know, he literally gave his, the cloak off his back, mm. you know, to a crazy man who, <clears throat> who a demon possessed man is to say, he healed him, gave him the cloak off his back and came in the, in the, in the boat with his Talmudim as, as a rabbi, you know, just, hmm. just high, not even, not even talking about his stature as, as Mashiach, but just as, as a rabbi with his Talmudim, that's humiliating. And wow. so that's an amazing thing when someone can give of themselves when at the cost of it embarrassing themselves, mm. you know, that's an amazing, amazing trait. You know, also the idea of, of being able to give joy out to people when you were going through your own personal Gehenna, you know, wow. um, but I'd, I'd really like to just talk about this idea. I guess one of the main practical takeaways is, um, uh, of what Eliyahu says about dancing between two opinions and the fact of where he placed the altar. Mm. Right? Right. And so, um, we have to come to a point where we take our beliefs into account. You know, because this whole, the, what Hashem said to us, when choose this day, you know, you can choose life, you can choose death, choose life. You know, that's not just a one-time thing. We don't come in there and accept the Torah, and then it's done. You know, you don't come in doing one mitzvah or doing one this mitzvah and then ignoring the rest. That's a choice you have to choose every day, every hour, every second, every minute of the day. You have to constantly choose that life. And um, I think for for those of us who may come in into this walk, into Jewish faith, through like as, as Belshuvas or as converts, you know, we have to take in consideration our old um, religion, if you will, where it's like secularism, Christianity, um, uh, Islam, you know, Hindu, Buddhism, whatever it was before we came in here. We have to take that into consideration because we're just like these people. You know, we have this 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 tendency to bring that religion into this pure faith and pollute it just like they did with idolatry because a lot of them still served Hashem, but they served idols as well. And so it's about constantly, um, adapting, adapting to the oral Torah, like, like Ahav, he refused the oral Torah, but except the written one, accepting that, accepting the rulings of the sages, accepting the rulings of the rabbis. Um, you know, but there's also this other point, that Eliyahu went on Har Carmel, right? Right. And he it, it's it's this concept that he did it. He went to the level of the people. Hmm. You know, I think that was a tikkun for Eliyahu too. If I may, may speak of just some of my own ideas, because he was so passionate for God's honor that he forgot about people. Mm. You know. And the rain, he prayed for the, the, the rain to cease so that God's honor would be justified, but all the people were suffering. Wow. And so what happened is he, he seemingly broke a Torah commandment in order to reach the people. <laughs> and so Hashem was putting him through a little tikkun in that, but it's the idea of, of meeting people where they are, and we have to accept you know, where we are now, but yet have a, a vision of where we want to go. 
and constantly battle our old ideologies. Um, so, you know, practical, practical, I guess, steps that we could take with those ideas is, you know, if, if someone's out there, you know, you just got a the door or whatever, you haven't really been praying, then, you know, start off just by saying, uh, Shema, Amen. you know, Shema, Baruch Shem Chavod, and, you know, as you do that, as you make that a habit, go into saying those three paragraphs. Amen. Going to saying the, you know, later on, uh, the, the whole blessing of the Shema. Going to saying the Amidah, but make yourselves practical steps and allow you to develop in the habit of getting here. Um, you don't have to eat it all at once, but you need to make those, you know, little steps and have a vision to where you're going. You know, as, as far as, you know, listening to oral Torah and abiding in Alacha, you know, uh, you get uh, Shokhan Rukh. Or, you know, you can get it free. It's, I know certain parts of it, if not all of it, is free on, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but Safari. Can. And so we could just make a time, to a day, just to read a little section, maybe a little uh, uh, little paragraph, if you will, of Shulchan Ruk every day, or if that's too much, maybe once a week, and then just put that in practice. You know? And that way, you, we're taking these little steps into becoming more observant and ridding ourselves of, of this, this old ideology and coming close to Hashem. And so don't, don't feel overwhelmed. If you take these little steps that are necessary, then the fire of God will, will rain down your life and you'll feel more close to Him than you have before. Amen. So let's not be those who weigh between two opinions, but let's not be those who are... Um, exceedingly harsh towards other others let's meet people we're at and also not be harsh to ourselves understand where we're at take that in an honest consideration Amen. but yet have a vision of where we want to go and have practical steps like you know we've just mentioned to get there Amen. what do we know what do we know baruch Adonai eloheinu melech haolam Zur ko haolamim, zadik veko hadorot, hael haneeman haomer veose, ham daber um kayem shekol debarav emet vazedek, neeman atahu adonai alohenu, vene emanim, devareka vedavar echad, midvareka akor lo yashuv rekam, ki el melek neeman verakaman ata. Baruch Ata Adonai, Ha'el Haneeman Bekol Devarav, Biskut Mashiach Yeshua. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, blessings to you, Chavivi, to our podcasters. This is Shomer and Chasis. Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov. Shalom. Shalom.